0: Welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, Deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone, Kelly Deutsch here, and welcome back to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. Today, I have joining me Dr. Kayleen Asvo. Normally when you meet someone, it's usually pretty easy to tell if they live from their head or heart or gut, but our guest today is one of those beautiful people who seamlessly seems to pull from all three. And Dr. Kayleen Asbo is brilliant on a head level with several advanced degrees in psychology and music and myth and history. She's lectured at Oxford and Chartres France and Assisi and Berkeley and for several operas and symphonies. But perhaps what I love most about Kayleen is how her curiosity and genius is rooted in her passions. Like you feel in your own body how deeply grounded she is in hers. So when she speaks, it's not just this intellectual exercise but a full bodied experience. So I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast today to talk about this intersection of mysticism, myth, psychology, history, pilgrimage, and a little about this Mary Magdalene book I hear she's working on. So welcome Kayleen. Thank you so much, Kelly, what a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so glad to have you. So you are many things, Kayleen. you are a musician, you're a cultural historian, you're a mythicist, you have degrees in depth psychology, you lead pilgrimages. Um, When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: what a great question all of the above but i think i started off wanting to be a storyteller Hmm. and a musician my very first dream was actually uh that i remember is when i was two and i dreamt that i was crawling towards a piano and if i didn't get to it i would die and from that time on i began begging my mother for music. Lessons which didn't happen for years and years and years later, um, but that was in my heart and at the same time, the world of stories was such a rich place. And I've come to see that for me, those um, are two of the biggest doorways to the spiritual experience to the oh. Numinous
0: hmm yeah I like that so. Out of all the various things that are present in your life right now, it sounds like those are threads that that weave through most of them. Is yeah. either music or story or perhaps some element of both? Both, yeah, yeah. both
1: together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I actually feel like um, my path is sort of like the five fingers of the hand. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about Celtic Christianity and this meeting of these two worlds and really deep into the study of early Christianity when it arrived to Wales and Ireland and went to Iona. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I love about the Celtic tradition is that they really sort of felt like it was this fivefold path approach in many ways that the doorways to the numinous included a study of history um, in in many cases, you know, Christian history. But also there was a doorway that was poetry Mm -hmm. and sung poetry. And then there was the doorway that turned into art with the illuminated manuscripts. And then music was so important in that contemplative tradition, as was nature and they all met together if you will in the palm of the hand with silence and friendship Hmm. and i think of that as being a wonderful model for a contemplative life um, to engage in those depths that can Yes, you can do the study in, in the library and reading the text and copying the text. But ultimately, you know, that's just, if you just use that, that's just one finger. <laughs> but if you do all of these other pathways that they meet together in this deeply, profoundly transformative experience that resonates in your whole being.
0: Yes, that's beautiful. And I love... I think the closer you get to the center, the more you begin to see how all those spokes meet in the center. I remember I had my first kind of, I don't know what I would call it, maybe intellectual ecstasy of sorts when I was in college and I studied humanities. And so for the first time I was studying periods of time where, you know, let's say in the Middle Ages, we would study it's like history, it's art, it's literature, it's politics, it's philosophy. And I was like oh my gosh, all truth really is one, you know, just like seeing how it all fit together. Like yeah, i yeah. never had that before. So absolutely. You know, I think it's, it's actually
1: only sort of in our rationalist age that we've separated and cut things apart so much. And some of my favorite, favorite beings were those, who wove them all together, you know, I think especially of Hildegard of Bingen, I know you're probably going to have a program on her later to come up, but you know, she was the Renaissance woman before there was a Renaissance, hundreds of years before, and it's fascinating to note that, you know, people tend to segment her, they know her medical work, or they know her theology, or they know her music, but she was all of that in the context of a contemplative life, She was a fearless leader, a social activist, um, one of the first composers that we know. And also, if you're not familiar with her illuminated manuscripts, they'll blow you away because she was painting things that, you know, were a prelude to Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. She was doing mandalas that look like they come from Tibet. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. But they were all part of this rhythm of living... And breathing a contemplative life that flowered in many, many aspects, not just one.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's I feel like so enriching, you know, for all of us, just when you are able to live in that way, that's not fragmented or segmented, but or
1: dismembered, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, of one of my favorite things that I like to say is that the word religion comes from the word religari, which means to religament to put things back together again. And so that place where we can be our whole being, Mm. where we can bring all of ourselves to, I think that that's a place of homecoming that we all long for in the depth of our being. And my experience is that when you enter into that place where you allow, for example, the wonder of science and the cosmos to alight your imagination as an artist or as a poet there there is this profound integration this return to wholeness mm. that really is not just enlivening and transformative but it connects you with with the rest of the world in a way that's so deeply healing
0: yes yes i I had a spiritual director who used to always tell me, holiness is wholeness, Kelly.
1: Yes, yes. And I think, you know, one of my favorite places to go in the world is Chart Cathedral. And so I, um, I've been there, I think, 12 times as a pilgrim and led, um, led workshops there. And one of the things I was fascinated to know about, you know, in the medieval times, before there were universities, you would go to a cathedral school. And at Chart they thought that there were seven rungs on a ladder before you could really talk about God as God. You had to be able to see the numinous and the sacred in language, in poetry, in music, in astronomy in geometry. And when you could see that divine pattern all around you in these different places, then you were ready. Then you were ready to start talking about theology, but not before. Not before you could see the wonder of the patterns that are all around us, but but most of us, you know, have our eyes closed. So mm-hmm. that to me is what gets gets really exciting is when you can see the, I love Parker Palmer's phrase, mm-hmm. the hidden wholeness.
0: Yes, yes, that's yummy. <laughs> I love that. Mm. There's so many directions that I want to go. I want to like pull on the Celtic string, and I want to pull on some <laughs> more of like, yeah, just the Middle Ages. I think are completely fascinating. Um, oh, yeah. Let's let's start with a little bit of the Celtic because I feel like that's something that people are really hungry to learn about because they've discovered that oh my gosh, there's other forms of. Um, Well, often other forms of Christianity is where a lot of people that I'm running into are like, oh my gosh, it doesn't have to be this way. (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm curious, A, how you discovered the world, this like Celtic world, and B, how you would describe the heart of it, like those who are unfamiliar with it, because it it is kind of shrouded in mystery. And you might hear terms like, you know, thin places or an Anamkara or things like that. (laughs) But yeah. if you're unfamiliar with it, it's kind of like, okay, but what else is it besides that? So your story. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, um, it is, it's such a huge and juicy topic. I mean, it's just so wonderful. And, you know, you use the word threads before and that, that's something that like, I feel like I'm following a thread as I, I look at this and, and the Celtic perspective, uh, the Celtic, the nurturing of that mindset is underneath the ground of so much of what I love. Mm. Um, So for example, just as a great example, you know, um, Hildegard of Bingen's monastery, which was in the Rhineland, underneath the foundations of the Benedictine monastery for hundreds of years before, had been a monastery established by a wandering Celtic monk, one of the Hmm. Peregrinatio, so that you find it's like hidden there under so many of the things that I love. And some of the great teachers at Shark Cathedral actually were monks who came from the Celtic islands. Hmm. So one of One of the things that I love about it, um, this is goes back to John Scottus Arend. I I can never say his name the way I want to, Arend. But one of the things that he said is that there's a big book and a little book that you should read from every day. The little book is the Bible. The big book is creation and nature. And I love that that we have both of those in the Celtic tradition. There is a sense not on original sin, but on that the, the seed of what is good best, what is most human is actually the spark, the divine spark mm-hmm. of original goodness. And I would characterize the philosophy at its heart as saying that we have kind of fallen into a sleep of forgetfulness and that we need to rouse ourselves from this sleep of forgetfulness through practices. And those are like the practices of those five fingers of the hand, you know, and, and it was a deeply contemplative and personal pathway that was profoundly empowering of women. Mm-hmm. that women and men were side by side there were many of these double monasteries mm-hmm. and many of these double monasteries the women the women were the abbesses and the men were there anamkara or spiritual friends or partners but they're unlike many forms of Christianity in which women are subjugated this was really a partnership a pairing that was so beautiful and that welcomed in the imagination with a kind of wild abandon And, and so for them, you know, this idea of picking up a harp and very often they would play them with a swan feather and that would be how they would, I mean, just think about that just as an image, (laughs) playing a harp with a swan feather. I mean, why not,
0: right? (laughs) Right, right, some drama to it, yeah.
1: Yeah, and singing then, and having the art be this doorway, you know, all of those incredible things like the Book of Cals, they really felt like image was another doorway into sacred beholding, and that the practice of art was a spiritual pathway, not a trivial pathway, but a a deep and profound and numinous spiritual pathway. And unlike many other forms of Christianity that have evolved, it was a deeply embodied spirituality. So initially, um, you know, the churches were outdoors. You know, they were around the sacred oak groves. They were in connection with nature. And the the communities that formed in these early Christian communities communities, like in Kildare around St. Saint, uh, Saint Bridget, for example. The abbey was in the center and it had the bells, but then surrounding that were the, the part of the village that had the musicians and the artists and the scribes. And then surrounding that were the blacksmiths and the seamstresses and the metal workers. And then surrounding that were the farmlands. And it was a mandala, if you imagine, with the abbey at the center. And so rather than it being a priest model, it was a model of teaching. Mm -hmm. So there would be the wise teachers, men and women, that would draw together people in contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And one of those contemplative pieces of practice was to go walking on pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And to go to these holy sites where holy hermits like St. Brendan had lived and to go deep into the cave. I I love the phrase, the cave of your heart through silence and song and be connected to nature. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in a building, but in a cave, in a grove. And that thread, you know, we see that come again alive in the Middle Ages with St. Francis. That's exactly what he would do. He would go off for his silent contemplation into the caves in the mountains behind Assisi or into Laverna. He would go into the cave of his heart. We have these stories that he would take up sticks and he would pretend, he would mime playing the violin and he would sing and people would be drawn by his song. And then he would tell a story and and that was... prelude to opening the heart. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the, the Celts were masters at this. And if you look then at lives that mirror this Celtic pattern, you see this profound friendship between men and women in which nature and poetry and music and art are all deeply embraced. Mm-hmm. And that for me is like, that is the thread And I traced that, you know, I got so excited about the Celtic realm when I was first introduced to it. Um, Certainly the works of some of the great writers like John O'Donohue and John Philip Newell are great places to start. And um, and then it was the actual act of going on pilgrimage myself. Mm. And lo and behold, I followed that thread and I found out that those Celtic monasteries had these deep roots with southern France. And I found out that, for example, St. Patrick, who many people think of as the founder of Christianity in Ireland, well, he had become a monk in the southern part of France in Gaul on an island where they would walk on pilgrimage to the cave of Mary Magdalene singing.
0: Mm.
1: And so there's this kinship, I'll say that, a fellowship, a kinship um, of these mystics that at their heart go into this cave of the heart through practice rather than belief, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's something that speaks to our time, you know, the, the spiritual wanderlust, you know? I, I think in my experience, there's been a lot of people who've been wounded or hurt or deeply alienated by religious structures. And sometimes the ideas or the dogmas are... are can be very alienating and it's so interesting that that's similar to what was happening in the earliest part of christianity that yeah. as it went from from egypt with the desert fathers and mothers and southern france and then it migrated to these, these celtic realms where it was it is in this these practices that we share together these embodied experiences that we share together where the doors of our hearts open and we can meet with joy.
0: Yeah. Do you think, so this idea of spiritual wanderlust connotes like a, almost like an existential restlessness, you know, like you're struggling with this mystery that you can't quite name and, you know, modern person might go eat, pray, love, you know, in India or, you know, something like (laughs) that, searching for themselves, right? Uh Um, Do you think that's what ancient people, like what's spurred ancient people to take these pilgrimages or what do you think let's say at least in the celtic imagination what spurred them on these pilgrimages
1: yeah i think there were a couple things one of them was just this sense of wanting to draw closer to people who in their imagination were their guides to a heart-centered life and there i mean i will i will say I, i i am I have had some of the deepest experiences of my own life going on pilgrimage to learn things, that there are things that you can feel and that you sense and that you see that you can never read in a book, uh, however close you want to be. There's, there is something about that that is, that is profound and can be utterly transformative. But I think it was also this idea to speak and switch to psychological language right now. Part of the idea of going on a pilgrimage is to leave behind. There's always this threshold moment where you're leaving things behind Mm. and you're letting go of your attachment to your fixed schedule, to your fixed ideas, to the fact I'm always going to have my latte at 830 in the morning and it's going to have oat milk in it. You know, all these things that we become attached to that It is the letting go and shedding of all of these things to wander into the unknown territory. And and so much of my experience, it's these very deeply profound places are in nature somewhere where you're closer to the wild, where you can hear that still small voice whispering in the wind and feel it, you know, in your heart. And so I think part of the psychological practice of pilgrimage that they were quite astute about is, let's leave behind the world with all of its noise and all of its chatter, and let's get ourselves out of our habits Mm -hmm. to sit in a place of radical simplicity. You know, the experience of being a pilgrim was often this liminal space. It had its dangers, absolutely, you know. But it was also like this idea of stripping things down to what is the essence what is the essence of who i am mm. where can i meet god in that essence um without all the trappings without all of the habits of mind without all the noise
0: yeah i feel like it's almost inviting in a in a conscious way though like traditionally things like ego death come through crisis, you know, where something big or tragic happens, some difficulty in life. And I feel like going on pilgrimage is almost consciously choosing some degree of that where you're taking yourself completely out of your comfort zone and you start asking like, well, well, who am am I I now? Who is God, you know, (laughs) like, what does this all mean? And, you know, those questions that Francis would ask, you know, like, who am I God and who are you? That's right. That's right.
1: And, and there is something in that to be able to behold the world with that kind of newness and freshness, Mm -hmm. you know, um, makes you see things more in the eyes of a child again, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. where we don't have, it's easier to let go of our judgments sometimes when we enter into that space and to take that on intentionally, um, can accelerate a lot of internal development
0: Mm, mm -hmm. what was the first pilgrimage you went on uh
1: the first conscious pilgrimage that i went on was to chart cathedral it Mm. was it was a a double pilgrimage actually it was one of those serendipitous experiences where the, the I had gotten like so, some special miles that somebody had given me but i could only use them at this one particular time so i was going to go to a workshop a labyrinth workshop at at grace cathedral where we were I, from sorry at chart cathedral taught by uh, the canon pastor of grace cathedral lauren artris who who really revived the modern labyrinth movement and but beforehand there had just been, um, I could I could only get there a few days earlier and I had a tiny little budget, you know, like no money to stay in hotels in Paris. And she suggested to me, because I had told her about this really deep experience I had had in something called Taise, which you might be familiar with. It's a, a contemplative form of um, prayer, which is really just singing. I mean, that there's a, it's almost a Western mirror of the idea of kirtan, of chanting mantras, but you're chanting uh, words from the psalms or simple phrases like Adoramus te. And I had this profound experience where I started crying so hard when I sang this one song. And she said, well, why don't you go to Taze and find out what that's about? <laughs> so I did. And I, ha- it was, it was mind blowing. My three days at Tézé, and and before I even got there, I got the best spiritual advice of my life. I was sitting at a bus stop waiting because to get there is hard. You have to take the train from Paris, and then you have to wait for the bus to come, and then you take the bus, and you know it's it's a journey. It's an arduous journey. It's not walking to Santiago Compostela, but it, it takes a while. And I was there waiting for the bus with this nun from Africa. And she said to me, she was going to Clooney to visit. And she said, she's, in her French, she said, in her elegant French, she said, why are you here? And in my very broken child French, I said, I don't know. But every time I hear Ubi Caritas, I cry. And so I'm going to Tase." And she said, ah, yes, yes. And then she explained to me in France, they have a phrase like, if you cry in response to beauty, you're a Magdalene. And she said, you must always follow your tears because they will, tears are holy. They are a gift. When you cry in response to an experience that touches you in your depth, that is your royal road to God. Wow. That's beautiful. And I found that to be the best advice I have ever received. You know, I think we, I hope, I hope all your Thank listeners you. have had that experience where you don't know why you hear a song, you see something, a child speaks to you and you go, I don't know why I have a lump in my throat or I have tears in my eyes. And mm-hmm. what are what, your goosebumps, you know, and that embodiment, and this gets us back to the Celtic stream, you know. They believed that the body was a way of speaking to us, you know, and that we could listen to that. And we have to discern, you know, the difference between the soul's longing and cravings. Those are two different things. But that pull, that tug on our heart, when we feel our heart like ready to burst, there is something there that speaks to us about our journey, about our next steps, And if we follow that, we come closer to that that inquiry. Who am I? And who are you? Who is thou?
0: Yes, yes. I love that. That's that's often what... um well i'll just say that's one thing that i love about many of the writings of the mystics is how they speak of prayer as desire you know of that some longing and holy yes like in and of itself is is already your prayer it's not just like oh i long to be with god why isn't he like no no that that very longing is already divine presence in you. (laughs) You Yes. Rumi
1: has this great poem called love dogs, you know, and he's like, he's crying out every night. And then some cynic comes and says, have you ever heard an answer? And so he stops, he gives up. And at the end of the poem, it's such a great poem. He says, that is exactly what you were saying. That longing is your answer. And then the last lines as translated by Coleman Barks go something like, there are a, that, that, that longing that you feel in your heart is the moan of a dog for its master. There are thousands of dogs who give their lives to that song, Give Your Life to
0: be one of them. Wow. Gives you goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what I find the contemplative, you know, the first lines of the Rule of Saint Benedict are Listen, my child. With the ear of your heart. And if you were to ask me to define, you know, what is mysticism, I would say it is the centuries-long quest to learn to listen with the ear of the heart Mm. and to see the world with the eyes of the heart.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing the reawakening that's happening around it's I'll say especially around the Christian mystical tradition, because I feel like, you know, for several decades at least the West has suddenly discovered the East and we're like, Oh, wonderful, like Buddhist, you know, practices and traditions and such. But it's kind of fun to see People discovering, like, oh wait, we had this too in our yes, that's a great
1: revelation. That is yeah. absolutely a great revelation. When I introduce people to the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas, they are blown away because they're like, I thought I had to go to Buddhism to have this kind of material. And, and you know, when you encounter the saying, some of the sayings of the Desert Fathers and Mothers of Egypt, um, it so much of that is the you know we find these parallel threads i'm i'm doing a lot of work right now um, where i'm talking to people who have been deeply immersed in buddhist traditions Mm. for decades and decades and decades and you know they have this shared dialogue of looking at the buddhist tradition and the teachings of non-attachment for example and then you look at the gospel of mary where the first saying is really about attachment uh, to matter gives rise to a passion against nature. Mm. Um, that's the first saying, And and you compare that to the Buddha's noble truth of, and, and look at those things and it's, wow, the parallels are, are amazing. Yeah. Um, not nearly as far apart as often people thought. And with so many of the mystics, you know, they have, uh, they've, they've acknowledged that, you know, they've come to that. Thomas Merton, for example, you know, who, did a deep dive into Buddhism as a Benedictine monk or Mm -hmm. meet Griffith, who went off to India and founded this ashram, but he was still a Benedictine monk, you know. Um, And I'm fascinated by that that meeting point.
0: Yes, yes, the overlap there. Um, I've often heard it said that a two mystics from different religions have far more in common than a mystic and a fundamentalist of the same religion. And I found that to be true 100% of the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. The mystics often get burned as heretics by people of their own religion, unfortunately. But yeah,
0: um, it's very whether it's
1: Christianity or you know in the East too. You know, they were their they have their own examples.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious how you first stumbled upon this contemplative path. Like, was it prior to you know the pilgrimage and the Taizé or where did that come about?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think I've always had this yearning to find what was the deepest ground of being. Hmm. Um, My parents met in college as the only two non-Mormons in a class on contemplative religion, and they were about as far apart as you could possibly get. and so their marriage, not surprisingly, did not last. <laughs> but um, I grew up with this very strange life where, you know, for a while my mother was a Presbyterian Sunday school teacher. And then she got remarried to a Catholic. And then they. F- they couldn't go to the Catholic church because she was divorced and, and they were told that she was not welcome that way. And so then they went to a Baptist church. But my father was on this other gypsy path. He was this bohemian artist and like my bedtime reading were these tales that were the tales of the incomparable. Mulla nasruddin which is a sufi stories so i was seven years old and he was reading me sufi stories during the summer and then i'd go back to sunday school with my mom and so interesting you know and and one of the times where he came to visit me i was only about eight and he pulled out the bible he's like okay let's tackle genesis and he took the first verse and he kind of did an exegesis on it you know and it was just all over and um so he gave me this smattering of things that was eastern religion and george orwell and you know like it was just like this wild cornucopia and here i am as a child trying to make sense of that and then going back into a much more contained environment where i was very prescribed and i think you know at the heart of that then what that planted inside of me is how can i develop language or can i find an experience that is big enough to hold it all mm. because in my own family i had people from so many different religious pathways and my friends so many of my friends were jewish mm. and then you know i had this wonderful high school teacher who was a mystic who introduced me to carl jung and mm. and the vedanta temple and i would go and chant vespers with nuns there wow. and, and I would find these little glimmers of peace or tranquility or a warmth in the heart in these different places. Um, and it felt to me, you know, like as a musician, like when you you recognize a particular kind of note, so it's Mm. like, Oh, they're, they're all touching on that same note in different ways, their themes and variations. And that became my quest, you know, is to find what is, What is the bigness behind it? Hmm. And then as I say with music, like I I, still to this day, some of the biggest, most, the biggest, I would call them religious experiences, mystical experiences for me have come from the music of Johann Sebastian Bach Hmm. and and for me that, you know, like I even started something I called Bach church for a couple of years. because I feel like that that's it. <laughs> like for me, that's the door. Um, and he points to that through his music in a profound way. Mm. Um, you know, he's sometimes people have referred to him as the fifth evangelist. Um, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, so that was, that's kind of the root of that quest is like, what, what is that thread that goes through everything? Mm. Having tasted moments that felt like deep wisdom in these different traditions yeah and so that kind of led me to it and then then my first retreat that was a, a benedictine style retreat a three-day retreat that wove together chant and silence um that just like the whole the it's not like the, the door blew off it's like dorothy in in oz where the house got picked up and moved to a different location
0: yeah yeah hmm. Hmm. I'm curious too. how um, in all of these elements and all of these threads that have been brought up from um, music and the spirituality and history, the Celtic, um, I'm curious where, so you said your teacher in high school introduced you to Carl Jung. And yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, you see a lot of people who are interested in Jungian psychology also end up interested in kind of the world of mysticism. I'm yeah. curious if it was the case for you and why that might be.
1: I, I think the kind of psychology that I'm drawn to is very much the depth psychology, and I did a really deep dive with Carl, you my, know, my PhD in mythological studies with an emphasis in depth psychology at Pacifica Un, um, University Graduate School, um, and for me, they, they are, are very much parallel pathways that, that Jung actually became fascinated um, in the midpoint of his life when he discovered the early Christians that were in Egypt and ones that have gotten this name that I think is a kind of erroneous name, but Gnostic. Mm-hmm. But what, what it really points to is that he was looking at these um, people who were grappling With this question of who am I in the depths and how do I find Mm. my sense of alignment with the numinous? And and he said, you know, those those Christians in the early 4th century, those were the world's first depth psychologists. Mm. What they were doing with their practices, what they were doing was very close to what he had developed as active imagination and a process of dialoguing. And, and we see this in Hildegard's work, you know, um, in, the, in the 12th century as well. She had developed a process of working where she dialogues with virtue and vice, and she actually created a whole proto opera called Ordu Vertutum. Well, that is so similar to what Carl Jung was doing in the red book, his great masterwork that was just published a few years ago, that was the basis for all of his psychological theories. And so I think, you know, I think it was very easy to say that Jung was a mystic. You know, mm-hmm. He was a mystic who then managed to translate his mystical experiences into a more scientific language of psychology because he had also had a background as a doctor you know, um, mm-hmm. of psychology. But this is why he had this great falling out with Freud. They had started off as friends and colleagues and then they became almost bitter enemies because they had this parting of the ways where Jung is like, you know, in the depths of the human being is this collective unconscious that is numinous and Freud would have none of that. Mm. He thought that that Carl Jung had gone off the deep end by saying there was a something, a something, you know, in, in the depths to mm.
0: encounter. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I, um, I Just the whole idea of um, shadow work, I love that that's becoming much more of a common um, practice. Oh, and so I love doing like, good. yeah, my favorite is really just using IFS or parts work in that I feel like it's such an easy way in to be able to access all of those parts, you know, essentially, like the Hildegard, <laughs> like, yeah. speaking with your virtues and vices and like, yeah. what do they have to say and to reveal to you? And it's just so illuminating instead of projecting it out there somewhere on the world or the people that you hate or the current president right. or you know whoever it is that like gets up your sleeves <laughs> like just yeah
1: to... you know and i think that the mystics of all the traditions have eventually the one the mystics that i love all come to this you know john cassian has done some gorgeous writing around this in the philokalia and then Picknot han who just passed you know mm-hmm. his poem call me by my true names where he's mm-hmm. like. Recognizing that everything is a part of himself, you know, like that is such important work for us all to do.
0: Yes. And I think that's often the missing part of spiritual growth. Like when people are really trying to, like, how do I grow? Is sometimes that like emotional, psychological part that, you know, it's great if you're, you know, working on your meditation practice or whatever spiritual practice that you have. And that's really important. But I feel like your spiritual growth at a certain point starts to get stunted unless your emotional and psychological growth parallels it.
1: That's right. And and as when we reach up towards the light, we also, like a tree, you know, mm-hmm. have to go deep, deep down and 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 look at our own shadows and our own darknesses and you know, I think that there—it's very common now—that phrase "spiritual bypass." You know, well, oh, I want to go and have—you know—sit on the mountain of ecstasy, and, and, and yet, you know, none of the great mystical traditions um, teach us that that's a good way to go. <laughs> You know, Jesus had to go off in the wilderness. You know, St. Francis had to go wrestle with his things. You know, the, the desert fathers and mothers talk about the hardest journey is confronting, you know, oneself and what's inside oneself there. yeah, And, and that is just utterly critical because when we don't do that, then we do start to project on to everybody else and that's the tragic history especially of christianity is the failure to do that work and then suddenly pointing the fingers whether it's you know the the muslims or other christians or women with the witch burnings you know and that that's where it's just so painful and so tragic and we
0: just have to not do that anymore yeah right it's like whenever you sense that, like any fear or hatred or, you know, especially when you despise someone, I mean, that's such a loud invitation from our bodies. Like, okay, right. what's, what's going on? What's here? That? Like, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, to like get curious, but it's, yeah, it's so remarkable how much that I guess it's just much easier to hate something out there than to hate yourself.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and yet, you know, owning it, you know, I would even say baptizing it, you know, welcoming it back and saying, where did that come from? You know, following that thread, where does that aversion come from? What is that reminding me of? And then when you get to that, oh, oh, moment, then it all, you know, it shifts it it, and, and you can embrace what you once um, put apart away from you, you know, one of the the deepest spiritual books in literature is the Parsifal story. Mm. And this is uh, what I went to actually to study with Lauren Artris on that first pilgrimage in at Shark Cathedral. And there's this marvelous moment at the end um, where Parsifal is like going and he wants to heal the world and he's got this true heart and everything. And he encounters this uh, other knight, and he starts to fight with them and then they come to a moment where they say let's catch our breath <laughs> and the knight takes off his mask and he recognizes that it's his long lost half brother who is half black and half white Moor. and he sees him and he goes oh wait you're my brother and they embrace and at that moment the grail castle appears mm-hmm. and they can enter into it and that's when the healing happens is, and I, I take this and unions have always taken this story as like, that's the wrestling with your shadow. Mm. And when you take off the mask and then you say, you actually, you who I thought were my enemy are actually my long lost kin. Mm. And I welcome you into my heart that that's the moment where the healing of the world can happen.
0: Mm, I love that. Mm.
1: And I think we're all called to do that individually and collectively. Jung, after the, um, the atom bomb was dropped, he thought, well, he was asked if humanity, he thought, would humanity survive? And he said, yes, but only if we all do our inner work. Hmm. And I yeah. think then part of our time is that radical realization that like, wow, it's gonna take all of us and it's not gonna happen by imposing laws out there only, it, it will happen by each of us doing what those desert fathers and mystics knew of like sitting in the cave of our heart and befriending the parts of ourselves that we have cast away. Yes. Learning to see stranger as friend.
0: I feel like we should do a whole podcast just using like depth psychology to look at the history of religion. <laughs> like, oh, like that archetypal. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it, there, there are some books out there um, like uh, that look at Jung and Teresa of Avila, for example, mm. and that's a pretty good one. And I did a series of things. I would I'd be delighted to do things with you. On yeah, that. yeah.
0: That's really so many, a, just a topic. Yeah, interesting crossovers. And so I just find the world of psychology can just be so illuminating, especially now that there's so much happening with like neuroscience and polyvagal theory and you know, all these things that are developing. And it just, it just makes things so much clearer. You know, like I remember one client in Spiritual Direction that I introduced to IFS, you know, and here's parts work and here's, and she she was like, I feel like this was like a wide toothed comb to like the tangle of my inner life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what a great metaphor. Great analogy. Yeah. yeah, but that that's kind of what the world of psychology and neuropsychology has done, at least for me. But it just makes things so much clearer instead of this kind of vague knowing, that's more like an unknowing, you know, that you just have a hunch or intuition about and makes it very clear so that it's not only your right brain that's like, "I think I," but your left brain's like, "Oh, this is why." Mm-hmm.
1: And it bringing those two together is so important because otherwise we will feel ourselves as divided people, you know. Yes. Psychology has done the studies on the split brain of people mm. who have split brain and and the ways that they really operate differently. And this is again why I think that the Celts were so brilliant, because they found with the brain, you know, that we have things that are more logical that and and logic and mathematics and parts of language really activate one part of our brain. But the art and the image activates the other and it's the music that actually activates both music mm. poetry so if you want to be a whole being if you want to be a whole spiritual being and you bring yourself together you know and, and part of the history of religion is the p- part who that wanted to cut out one part of the brain. You know, <laughs> there was centuries where it's like, no, you can't study science. No, you can't do that. You, you know, you'll be burned at the stake or logic has no place. And now in our modern world, we're often in the other hemisphere where we cut out the embodiment and, and the spiritual life. And we'll never be whole without bringing them both together. And yes. psychology, you know, the word psychology, psychology psyche plus logy is story of the soul Mm. and so we can't be our souls can't be whole until we story it in a new way Mm. until we tell it in a new
0: way yes yes and i think that um is a great parallel to the kind of the masculine feminine, you know, and I know we'll talk in a little bit about about the women mystic school, but that sacred feminine, and I think there's just such a resurgence happening amongst people starting for that, we so are. And I think that's exactly what you were just referring to there is how much there's the kind of archetypal masculine energies that are very like left brained and (laughs) scientific and rational. But how much we just, yeah, there is just a starvation diet that happens in, in most of the West, you know, yeah. on, on things that include embodiment and just, a uh, beauty, hospitality, beauty. beauty. Oh my gosh. I know. And passion. <laughs> so much.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, one of the other great stories that I just love and I teach every year is, is about Dante's divine comedy mm. for people who have no interest in reading it, but like yeah. Dante, you know, Dante for dummies almost. Yeah, yes, um, and, and just, you know, He gave us such a great blueprint for this because he talks about like being lost in the middle of his life and just coming to in this dark forest and sort of like going, where am I and how do I get out of this mess? And just feeling like every road is blocked. And his first guide who guides him through hell is the ghost, if you will, of a Virgil, you know, a a man from the Roman times who is able to get him and navigate him through hell and even through purgatory where he starts to change and develop Mm. new habits. But then he can't go any further. And at that point, he says, I can be your guide no longer. And then it becomes a woman, Beatrice, who represents love and beauty and the sacred feminine. And she's the one who guides him the rest of the way. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for that journey, like, okay, the left brain can help get us out of hell. But, you know, to come into our fullness, to Mm -hmm. claim our gifts, to find our sense of union, we have to have the sacred feminine. And we need both. It's not either or. We need
0: both. <laughs> Preach it. <laughs> it's so good. I. It's. Um, the line from Dostoevsky comes to mind, you know, that beauty will save the world. And I that yeah. for the longest time was my favorite quote. Like, yes. There's something like yeah. Yeah. We've, we've hammered truth down people's throats for so long, whether it's like religious battles or just the analytical stuff. You ought stuff. to. Like, you should. Yeah. Right. I know. But it's like beauty is just so arresting, you know, it just sneaks in the back door and you, you don't have words for it and you're powerless before it. That's
1: right. And, and for Dante, Dante's journey in paradise is the question. This Mm. is, this is the preview for the Dante (laughs) webinar, but the question is how much beauty can you bear? Mm. Because we actually have to learn to practice beauty. If you can take nothing else, because once you practice, Seeing the beautiful in the other person before you or the world around you we so much of at at the time we walk through sleepwalking and we don't notice and and we can really be dragged down to despair then one of my mentors who does all this profound work on grief a psychologist francis weller go read his books it's amazing um but he he talks about you know carrying the sorrows of the world and we can only do that if we're also attentive to how much beauty so Mm -hmm. he'll ask people who come to the grief workshop did you see the daffodils as you walked in? Mm. Did you hear the nightingale? Um, and they'll be like, "No, I didn't see it." And so it's like the practice, like, "Can you go back?" And and this is will bring us back to Mary Magdalene because she says, "This is why the good with a capital G in the Gospel of Mary. This is why the good has come into your midst to reunite you with your roots." Mm. And so how do we practice seeing the good and the beautiful and the true? And the more you can cultivate this in your life and say, "Okay," when I was a preschool teacher putting my way through uh, college, I I worked at this one preschool where they said our job every day is to catch the children being good and then to say like at lunchtime, like, Jonathan, I saw you. You stopped when Jane fell down and you gave her a hug. That was so sweet that our tension as a culture has been on what do you do wrong? Not what do you do well? What, what yes. have been your moments of grace? But this was a spiritual practice that actually Dante knew about in southern France of catching people being good and secretly sending them notes to admire their beauty and goodness. Mm,
0: that's lovely. That's a lovely practice. There are like 18 things I want to talk to you about, but I'm also She's aware that we don't have time to like <laughs> talk through everything. Um, OK, so first, um, OK, let's do two things. First of all, I want to hear a little bit about this book you're working on, on Mary Magdalene how did this start and where are you going with it what does it explore exactly
1: sure sure so the book is an outgrowth of my dissertation that looked at mary magdalene through myth art and culture mm-hmm. and this goes back to that you reading a book of text will only get you so far but so much of what i learned i learned through following the thread of embodied liturgies throughout the the centuries mm. through art and through music um and it's actually an interactive book um, that's mm. related to a program i've run for years online called magdalene emerging 22 days that mm. looks at the historical part of how she was in the bible in tradition how did she go from being the first apostle to the apostles to being the penitent sinner to being a prostitute and and the restoration but more importantly, this is the psychological piece. is like the archetype of Magdalene. Mm. Because the archetype of Mary Magdalene is what is it to be able to stay present for suffering mm. with compassion and courage, but also to have the eyes to see new life when it appears, when you least expect it. Mm, I love that. And I feel like that's what we're all called to in this time. We're in a catastrophe time of collective collapse, dissolution, where between COVID and the environment and everything, the world as we know it is changing like sand underneath our feet. It's different. And it would be easy to hide, to numb ourselves, to, um, you know, to turn away, to become addicted to things. So what is it to see that and witness that, but also to have the joy to speak your truth when you sense a new life emerging. And I feel like that's so important for all of us. I see you doing that. That's part of what your whole mission statement with this is, it feels like, is like, where's your truth? How do you say it? And how do you stand in that place of of radical hospitality and courage and conviction and compassion? Yes. So I think she's just such an incredible figure that way. And, and frankly, I'm gonna say something that you might wanna edit out But I think that Christianity, um, like it's survival depends on, in some ways, on the restoration of the feminine. And the way we have to start is by going to the root and she is there at the root. She is the only person who is named in all four gospels. She is the one consistent element and she has been cut out and left out and, and vandalized across the centuries and like we have some serious atonement to do around that serious yeah
0: right i was reading an article on her i think it was on the smithsonian and the article started off with a statement that essentially said the history of mary magdalene is the history of women and sexuality in the west i was like right. that's right <laughs> oh, yeah that's
1: right mm-hmm. and, and it is it is a painful and dark history which in our own time. Is being liberated and brought to our light in profoundly inspiring ways. And so, for the past 15 years, I have met people all over the world who are doing amazing things. And I'm gathering them together for this, this online conference because, okay, this is where I'm going to start levitating. So, I need a seatbelt. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like In Christian history, for 1600 years, we have followed the wrong footsteps. In the Christian liturgies for Holy Week, we walk in the footsteps and take the parts and recite in Palm Sunday the words of the men who denied and betrayed and abandoned Jesus. And we think that's the whole story, but it's not. There was a whole group of women who didn't deny, didn't betray, didn't abandon, who stood at that foot of the cross watching the horrific suffering of someone that they loved chanting the psalms with them with love cradling the broken bodies in their arms and coming together with their jars of balm and healing to offer anointing and love and devotion and it was to them that the resurrection happened it was to them that it was chosen you go spread the word And so I feel like we need to collectively, like, why don't we walk in those footsteps? Why aren't there church rituals every Holy Week where people literally take, we don't even know their names. How many people know it's Marie Jacobet and Marie Salome and St. Peter's mother-in-law? And we don't know their names. We don't know their stories. Mary Magdalene was turned into a prostitute. We must reclaim them. Mm. And what would happen if we embodied them? Mm. What would happen if we created rituals where we felt their presence within us, where we could see with our own eyes? Oh, it wasn't a man abandoned and forsaken by himself there was a community of faithful devoted loving compassionate courageous women who stood by him every step of the way and i honestly believe that would change the narrative of so much in the world it would encourage people to find inside their inner witness their their the person that could stand by the suffering of their loved ones or the stranger like it would activate something inside our human hearts that would be profoundly transformative Mm -hmm. and so that's why I've created this little conference that's coming up like to see it's a smorgasbord of 20 people from around the world who are doing amazing work and it's like okay here's a feast take something and Mm -hmm. use it in your own life to create your own circle even if it's only two or three people what is it like to do that
0: Yeah, absolutely. If people want to find out more either about that conference or other things that you're up to, because I know you also do like virtual pilgrimages and you have a class on like T.S. Eliot and like the mystical life. I was like, oh man, there's so many good things. Tell us, tell our audience where they go. right
1: to my website, which is www.kayleneasbo.com. K-A-L-E-E-N-A-S-B-L. Yeah,
0: I really encourage everyone to check that out. We also, Kayleen is going to be our first speaker at our Women Mystic School that's kicking off. And so we get to geek out even more about Mary Magdalene (laughs) (laughs) and learn. I am so excited because I feel like it's, um, there are tons of different people who talk about Mary Magdalene, but I don't find too many who have such a breadth and depth of different disciplines, you know, that can be, um, kind of cross-pollinate and weave together, you know, and that that's what makes this such a um, rich tapestry, you know, is all the different threads that get put together to make this beautiful and warm. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> well, what I love most is to gather all of these different pieces together and then to invite you to ask the question for yourself you know who is mary magdalene for you because that's the most important thing it's not what i say or cynthia boujo or anybody else says you know it's like oh encountering these stories and these images what happens in your own wild human heart
0: yes yes and that's what i'm most excited about for this series is each person that we've invited to be a speaker really embodies this as well so it's not like an academic you know course that we're doing but like right right like each one is meant to be something where it's like all right pull up a chair next to mary here let me introduce (laughs) you to her like exactly family reunion
1: time (laughs) yeah yeah
0: exactly because each of these women were were full-bodied and beautiful and complex and flawed and gorgeous like all of us are and, you know,
1: this word that's so important to me from the early, early scriptures that didn't make it into the Bible, the word anthropos, fully human. Mm. And I love the people that you've chosen. I've taught about most of them this past year, and I can't wait to see what other people say. And then there's two that are like brand new for me. So I'm, I'm going to be pulling up my chair to be in the audience for each of these programs. It just looks delicious.
0: Yes. Yes. I'm very excited. So. If anyone listening is hungry for more about Mary Magdalene, the mystics, you can join us. Uh, Kayleen is speaking on February 5th, but you can even join afterwards and catch the recording. Um, And you can just go to womenmystics.org to check that out. And I highly encourage you to check out Kayleen's website, too, because she has lots of wonderful courses and resources and other wonderful things there. So. Mm. Kayleen, this has been so rich. I feel like I so could talk to you forever. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I'm glad we
0: get to do something soon again. <laughs> yes, indeed. I thank you so much for joining us. And everyone, thank you for listening today. Bye-bye. Bye.